Well, it's great to be in Scottsdale, and uh, where it's warm. Is it warm here? I'm not so far away in Los Angeles, Southern California. It's you know, not too bad there either. Um, I'm going to speak for probably, I don't know, maybe 40 minutes, something like that, and there'll be plenty of time for Q&A, and I invite you to ask questions. Uh, so feel that, that you can uh, feel comfortable. You also have text. Does everybody have a set of texts? Now, sometimes I speak from the texts. I'm not going to do it this evening for two reasons. One is that there are a lot of them, and we could get bogged down in these. The other is that I really want to make sure that I cover the issues that I really want to cover, but then we'll have plenty of time, I hope, afterwards to do, have some real discussion, and we can discuss the texts in some detail if, you, if something strikes your fancy. One of the reasons why I give texts out when I do most of my speaking, and I, I do my speaking around texts, usually, is because um, you know, people can stand up in a pulpit like this or somewhere else and can thump various scriptures and say the good book says this and that, and if you don't have it in front of you, don't trust them. <laughs> I, I tell my students that. I tell them, don't trust me either, because who knows whether the person is making any sense or not. So I always give text out, and when I give text out, then I tell my students, you still can't trust me because I just chose those texts. I could have chosen a different set of texts and I probably could have created a different narrative or a different viewpoint on things because our scriptures are so complex uh, and uh, that, that they uh, can be read in a variety of different ways and it depends on what you're concentrating on. That's an issue of great importance to me personally in my scholarship and it's something that I love to talk about but it's really not the topic for today. Um, my job today, my mission, which I chose to accept, is to um, look at a familiar thing in a new or a different way. The purpose in doing that is to challenge assumptions and open up new ways of thinking. Now that's often really fun, but it can also produce a certain level of anxiety. It's not bad, of course. In fact, it's important to be stretched. Um, that's really part of our tradition to stretch ourselves and to be stretched. The book of Jeremiah um, has an interest, and it's not in your texts here, by the way. I just saw some people looking down. I am going to be referring to some of these texts. This is the story with the texts. You have all the texts I'm going to be referring to that deal with Jerusalem are in this packet. There are more texts that deal with Jerusalem as well. Um, and you can look at these in some detail at home. Uh, we, and if you want to also scan them as we move along, you might be spending a lot of time trying to find that my quick little citation that might be in the third page, two paragraphs down, or whatever. Um, so I'm not sure if you're going to be able to find the text material immediately. But in the book of Jeremiah, God says, Halo kol dvari ka'esh is not my word like fire. And there's a drosh on this. Rabbi Bar Bar Chana refers to this verse in the Talmud in Tanit. And he says, Why are the words of Torah, the words of God, likened to fire? And he answers, it's to teach you that just as fire does not ignite by itself, so 
words of Torah don't abide in those who study by themselves. He's saying that we need to be stimulated from the perspectives of people with different ideas, different ways of thinking about things. That makes us smarter and more able to function in an increasingly complex and perplexing world. So we're going to have that approach when we look at Jerusalem. You may recall, some of you, that the municipality of Jerusalem had a very large celebration in 2000. Remember that? Ehud Olmert was the, uh, the mayor. And there was a big celebration of Jerusalem's 3,000th birthday. It was 3,000 years ago that King David established Jerusalem as the capital of the United Monarchy of Israel. It was King David who built the royal residence in Jerusalem and his son Solomon who built the temple. But have you ever asked yourself what was in Jerusalem before David? We actually know something about this and from the Bible itself. David conquered Jerusalem from a people who lived there previously. They were called the Jebusites. In fact, according to the book of Samuel, David bought the land upon which the temple would be built from a guy, we even know his name, Ornan Hayibusi, Ornan the Jebusite. But Jerusalem existed actually for centuries even before the Jebusites arrived on the scene. It was a sacred city long before King David and before Ornan. Going back to Genesis 14, Abraham, who lived 800 years before David, was once on his way back to Beersheba from the Dead Sea area when he was greeted by a, a, a priest named Malkitzedek. Malkitzedek was a priest of a god known as El Elyon. Have you ever heard that? El Elyon? Ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor v'hanora El Elyon. That's in the, in the Jewish, yeah, in our prayer service. The Most High God. And that priest lived in the city that was called Shalem, which biblical scholars believe is Jerusalem. In, uh, if you see Jerusalem spelled in the Hebrew, Yerushalayim, there's no yud at the end. It's pronounced as if there's a yud. Yerushalayim, yik, but there's no yud there. So it's probably at some point the dialect was Yerushalayim or Yerushalem. So Shalem seems to be a word for Jerusalem. And that was 800 years before David. So if the Jerusalem municipality wanted to have been historically accurate, they would have celebrated Jerusalem's 3,800th birthday. But then the credit for its founding wouldn't have gone to King David and the Jews. We actually have ancient datable sources that mention Jerusalem even before Malkitzedek in Egyptian sources a century earlier. It was in uh, uh, desecration texts. These are really interesting. A desecration text is a pot, a pot in uh, the pharaohs in Egypt. When they got really angry with somebody, they would write their name on a pot, and then they'd go up to the top floor of the palace, and they'd throw the pot down on the ground and said, this should only happen to you. <laughs> Sounds like my, my grandmother. And uh, we found, or not we, but uh, archaeologists have found potsherds from execration texts with the name Rishulamim, uh, I think it's Rushalimu, Rushalimu. These were uh, kings that lived in Rushalimu, which probably is a reference to Jerusalem, who were vexing the pharaohs and trying to be independent. And that was even before Malkitzedek. 
But Jerusalem appears in history even before that. Let's see here, in clay tablets, um, pre-Apple tablets, <laughs> written clay, not apple, written in cuneiform, dated to about 2500 BCE, found in Tel Marduk, which is the ancient city of Ebla in today's Syria, written in, in Akkadian. And there is, are references to the city of Salim, which is probably the Shalem of Malkitsedek. But that would require a birthday party celebrating Jerusalem's 4,500th birthday. The earliest evidence we have for settlement in Jerusalem is just about the time that the first writing systems were being developed, before there could be a written reference to Jerusalem in ancient archives. Pottery vessels have been found in Jerusalem, then a very small settlement, perhaps even without a name, that date from the period going back some 5,000 years. That's about 2,000 years before King David. So Jerusalem has been around for a long, long time. But what, what gave Jerusalem its sanctity? What made it a sacred city? What makes a place holy? Well, places are determined to be sacred because they're extraordinarily different than usual, because something truly remarkable happens there perhaps something astonishing, communication with the transcendent, an oracle or a prophecy or a miracle, an important life is saved there or an important child is born there or an extraordinary act of nature is witnessed there, a volcano, a beautiful spring in a bone-dry desert or maybe even a, a huge and remarkable tree can make a place sacred. What happened in Jerusalem? Where were our miracles? God was witnessed by two million people at Mount Sinai, if you count the demographic, it's called 600,000 men of fighting age, so if you figure the full demography, that equals about two million people. Uh, where did we receive the Torah? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, that wasn't in Jerusalem. Israelites were redeemed from Egyptian bondage and they passed through what? The Red Sea. Where was that? Somewhere far away from Jerusalem. So what actually did happen in Jerusalem? Yeah, not, not a lot in the miracle category. Yeah, the sacrifice, the attempted sacrifice of Isaac, the Akedah of Isaac, happened in, at Har Hamoriah. And that is not identified as Jerusalem, except in the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Chronicles, it then says, ah, that was in Jerusalem. <laughs> so, interesting, right? So, I don't know, I, I would vote that the early, early sanctity of Jerusalem probably derived long, long before King David and long, long before Melchizedek. Has anybody gone to the, the, the Gihon Spring? Have you ever walked in the water tunnel? How many people have walked in the water tunnel? That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Have you, were you there in the summertime? It's hot. You know from hot. But there's this, this flowing spring, I mean, of huge amounts of water that seem to come out of nowhere. It's clear and fresh and cool. That might have been the miracle that started the sanctity cycle in Jerusalem. 
But the sanctity of Jerusalem for Jews uh, really is because it was the location of the temple, the Jerusalem temple. And that location was decided upon for political and military reasons, not because of miracles. Whatever the origin of its sanctity, however, Jerusalem has become a sacred center for the largest number of religious adherents on earth, Jews and Christians and Muslims, all revere the city, and guess what? They all consider it their holy city. Each religious civilization claims Jerusalem for itself. I'm going to take a look at how the three great religions feel about Jerusalem. It's important for us to understand that. I don't think we need to do a lot of work on the Jewish view of Jerusalem because we're pretty familiar with it. Jerusalem was the political capital of the nation of Israel for a thousand years. A thousand years and the spiritual capital for 2,000 more. What we sometimes ignore, however, is that during those 2,000 years, when Jerusalem was the spiritual but not the political capital of the Jewish people, it became the capital for other religions as well. Perhaps the real miracle of Jerusalem is that its ancient holiness was absorbed into so many religions, but that may not be such a blessing. It's turned out to be its greatest challenge. According to the Tanakh, our Bible, Jerusalem is the place in which the Shekhinah, God's presence, dwelt when the temple was standing in the holy city. Jerusalem is therefore intimately associated in Jewish tradition with the divinity of God. Mount Olympus may have been the abode of the bickering Greek gods, but the Temple Mount was the abode, the abode of the one great God of the universe. The Jewish association with Jerusalem is personal and it's deep. Jerusalem often represents Judaism itself. The psalmist in the Psalms laments the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians with the following words, Im eshkachech Yerushalayim, tishkach l'mini, tidbak b'shoni v'chitki, im lo eskarechik, im lo a'aleh et Yerushalayim arosh simchati. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. What do we say? What did we say last week at the end of our Siddharim, our Seders? Next year, Jerusalem. In the Birkat Hamazon, said after every meal, we say, And God, please rebuild Jerusalem, the holy city, in our days. And in the Amida, of our, the core of our prayers, three times a day, in traditional Jewish uh, settings, we beg God to return to Jerusalem and rebuild it and to reestablish David's throne there. When the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was no longer the political capital of the Jewish people, it never ceased being the symbolic or spiritual center. In the Mishnah, Jerusalem is the most sacred city in the entire world. The Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple lies at the very foundation stone of the universe, the Evan Shtia, the the axis mundi, around which the universe evolves. As the center point, Jerusalem is known in the Midrash also as Shar HaShamayim, the gateway to heaven. And it has a special role at the end of days, for it's to Jerusalem that some traditions say Jews will be transported to witness the final redemption of the entire world. But this deep and spiritual Jewish association with Jerusalem isn't traditionally expressed in terms of real history. 
The longed-for renewal, the rebuilding, and the return will only occur when God decides, in some unknown future. For tens of centuries, the destruction of the temple and the resultant exile were mourned by the rabbis, but our sages also understood the exile and the destruction to be divine judgments that we must accept until God brings the Messiah. This would change with the coming of modernity, for modernity radically altered many traditional Jewish concepts. The image of Jerusalem as the political as well as the spiritual capital of the Jewish people was revived in the modern period through a national movement called Zionism. You may know that the word Zion, the root of Zionism, is used by the biblical prophets as a reference to Jerusalem. You may find this surprising, but modern Zionism was not founded on principles of Judaism. Modern Zionism was founded on principles of modern nationalism, and especially the romantic nationalist ideas of mid to late 19th century Europe. The activists who founded Zionism were secular Jews. They invoked the spiritual images of Jerusalem in order to rally Jews behind the nationalist enterprise. To a great extent, it worked, and especially among modernizing secular Jews, much more so than among religiously observant Jews. Remember that the founders of the State of Israel were almost all secular, and most of them were socialists as well. So we observe with modern Zionism a kind of repoliticization of the centrality of Jerusalem. And today, we can observe a variety of Jewish attachments to Jerusalem. Some Jews have retained the non or even anti-political position of Jewish religious tradition that tries to dissociate Jerusalem from politics, to keep it a, a holy city, but not a political center of the Jewish people. The most obvious and, and strong adherent to this position of the Neturei Karka, very strong uh, traditional Jews. Others want Jerusalem to be the political capital of the state of Israel, with all the trappings of a great national capital, capital, but not a holy city with all of its trappings. These especially are the secular Jews. Others want to see both, and it's in part this tension that we observe among Israelis today who are fighting over the Jewish future of Jerusalem. But the overwhelming majority of modern Jews today, everywhere, religious and secular, believe strongly that Jerusalem must remain within the political and military control of the modern state of Israel. Although this is a modern, not a traditional, a modern sensibility that's actually con contrary to the views of mainstream rabbinic Judaism from the time of Rabbi Akiva of the Mishnah until the 20th century, it does harken back to biblical roots when Jerusalem was symbolic of the political as well as the spiritual nation of Israel. So now that I've sort of dismembered our traditional attachment to Jerusalem, I haven't dismembered it, but looked at it in a kind of critical manner. We are deeply attached, but deeply attached for reasons that we might not have thought about. Now let's attack Christianity. <laughs> and Islam in the same way that I'm looking at, I'm, I'm overstating it, but you know what I mean. Let's be critical about Christianity and Islam as well. Christianity inherited the sanctity of Jerusalem from the Bible. By the emergence of Christianity, Jerusalem was the symbolic center point for monotheism. When anybody thought about monotheism, they thought about Jerusalem. That was the place 
place for the temple, the place of God. Christianity parted from its Jewish roots, but it felt the need to remain true to its biblical roots. So it updated or modernized its reading of the Bible through the New Testament. In this new revelation, God didn't send a text, but rather his own son to live out the divine word through his actions. Jesus himself was God's revelation. According to Christianity, Jesus was the Logos, God's living word on earth. But Jesus actually had only a small following. Most people refused to recognize him as Messiah. So how could the truth of Jesus be made manifest to his people? Jesus was from Nazareth in the Galileo. Galilee is far away from Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was known by then as the city of prophets, even though no biblical prophet was from Jerusalem. Jesus spent virtually all of his life in the Galilee. That's where he preached, where he lived, where he interacted with people. He was absent from Jerusalem virtually his entire life. Despite his problems so forcefully articulated in the Gospels, Jerusalem was known by everybody as the center of monotheism. Jesus needed to be associated with the holy city in order for the people to realize his true nature. We read a fascinating statement in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says in chapter 13, I quote, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the next day because it's unthinkable for a prophet to meet his death anywhere but in Jerusalem. Fascinating. And of course, Jesus' last days, the crucifixion and the ascension, all occurred in or near the holy city. That brings the central motifs of Christianity into the sacred sphere of biblical monotheism. Jesus' association with Jerusalem therefore authenticates the religious truth of Christianity. Jerusalem gives it authority, gravitas. But to the Christian followers of Jesus, the sanctity of Jerusalem remained in the realm of the spirit. It was physical, its physical holiness didn't have the same meaning that it had for Jews in Judaism. It wasn't the physical place called Jerusalem, but the idea of Jerusalem that became so important in early Christianity. The New Testament book of Acts, chapter 17 says, and I quote, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in shrines made by man. Christianity deterritorialized monotheism. Place is not important. What is important is faith, and faith exists everywhere. Jerusalem is changed then in Christianity from a place to a concept. In Hebrews 12, we read, it's not to the tangible, blazing fire of Sinai that you have come with its darkness, gloom, and whirlwind. No, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels. But the decisive uh, or the des desire of early Christians to sort of remove Jerusalem from its physical sense, to deterritorialize and depoliticize Jerusalem and Christianity didn't really succeed. Because in the fourth century, some 300 years after the death of Jesus, the sacred sites of the crucifixion and the ascension were discovered by Helena, the mother of Emperor Constantine. That was when the sacred sites were established, and that happened in the western area of the city, away from the location of the temple. The ancient temple represented the old covenant, the old covenant that had been abolished. The new covenant of Christianity then came to be represented physically 
by magnificent churches and basilicas built at the important locations of Jesus' last days in the Holy City. How many people have walked along the Via Dolorosa, all in the western city, away from the Temple Mount? But even these places where Jesus walked were not considered important in the concrete. Their awesome significance was in their abstract, in their spiritual meaning, in the spirit that they conveyed to the believer. Jerusalem would never be considered a sacred political center for the church, except during one period. When was that? During the Crusades. That's when the Latin church turned many of the religious ideals of Christianity really on their head. Aside from this exception, Christianity has not pushed very hard for political control over Jerusalem. Christianity has two Jerusalems, the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem of the spirit and Jerusalem of the flesh. Although the fleshy earthly Jerusalem was and remains important today, it's because it represents the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of the spirit. Here's a story that I think will illustrate what I mean. It's a great story. In 1129, a while ago, an English man named Philip set out on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which was under the control of the Crusaders. On his way to Jerusalem, he stopped in a monastery in France, in Clairvaux. Shortly afterwards, his bishop in England received a letter from the abbot of the monastery in Clairvaux, announcing the good news that Philip had arrived safely and quickly to his destination, much earlier than expected, and that he intended to stay there forever. And I'm going to quote from this letter. Quote, he has entered the holy city and has chosen his heritage. He is no longer an, in, an inquisitive onlooker, but now a devout inhabitant and an enrolled citizen of Jerusalem. But this Jerusalem, if you want to know, is Clairvaux. She is the Jerusalem united to the one in heaven by a wholehearted devotion, by a conformity of life, and a unquestionable spiritual affinity. So Jerusalem could be anywhere. Christians cherished Jerusalem and the sites in the Holy Land because it was there that Jesus walked and ministered and died and rose from the dead. Christians come on pilgrimage to visit the sites associated with the birth and the mission and the passion of their Savior. They find great spiritual uplift in the places associated with the mystery of salvation and they feel a blessing in walking in the footsteps of their Lord. But this is a shift in allegiance from a political geographical center of the Bible to a personal spiritual center. Jerusalem is pretty much deterritorialized in Christianity. Even the earthly Jerusalem is representative of the heavenly Jerusalem. But what about Islam? That's what you're waiting for. Islam has taken a different position on Jerusalem, one that's much more similar to that of the Bible. Islam's association with Jerusalem began quite early in its history. The Prophet Muhammad died in 632. Let's get that kind of chronology. 632. What, what was happening in the world in 632? Not BCE, CE. This is a hundred years before Charlemagne. 150 years before Charlemagne, 632. It was about the time that the Talmud was just being finished up at that time. And the great conquest, the Muslim conquest, began about two years after Muhammad died. Jerusalem was conquered in 638 
only four years after that. Now, the uh, people, the, the, the office that guided the Muslim community after the death of the Prophet Muhammad was, was called the Caliph. The Caliph is the political and the military leader of the Muslim world. When the great conqueror Caliph, Umar ibn al-Khattab, conquered Jerusalem and entered it, the Temple Mount area was a garbage dump. Now, why was it a garbage dump? That's because Christian rulers wanted to publicly demonstrate the end of God's old covenant with the Jews. So the ruins of the Temple Mount were the remnant of the Jewish temple. And the putrid smells and unpleasant sight of the place would always remind the inhabitants and visitors to Jerusalem of the ascendance of Christianity. The beauty of Jerusalem had moved westward. Jerusalem's sanctity was centered around the Holy Sepulchre, the place where Jesus was crucified and buried. But a strange thing happened with the Muslim conquest of the city. According to the early Muslim historians, the victorious caliph was given a tour of the city by the Christian patriarch of Jerusalem, Sophronius. When the caliph saw what had been done to the Temple Mount, he personally rolled up the sleeves of his jalabiya, his, his, his uh, gown, and he led his people in a group cleanup of the entire area. Very interesting. A temporary mosque was immediately established on the Temple Mount. Unlike Christianity, Islam regards the temple area as a sacred place. Under Muslim rule, the sanctity of Jerusalem moved back eastwards and away from the Holy Sepulchre, back to the Temple Mount, which was called in Arabic Al-Haram al-Sharif, the, the noble sanctuary. It's called Al-Haram to this day. Fifty years after Caliph Umar's conquest, in 691, a caliph named Abdul Malik constructed a, a structure that we see on the Temple Mount today, the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock was a political statement. It was built at an elevation above the Christian Holy Sepulchre, and its architectural style is that of the Byzantine commemorative monument, not a mosque. It wasn't built as a mosque. The great monument broadcasts the message of Muslim control over the holy city and the supremacy of the Muslim caliphate over its Christian competitors, the Byzantine Empire. The Dome of the Rock is the oldest Islamic monumental structure in existence today, and it's the third most sacred site in the world of Islam. The Al-Aqsa Mosque, I don't know if you've ever seen this placement, that was built a few decades later, south of the dome and facing Mecca, not as old, and also the one that we see today is about half the size of the original that was burned down a long time ago. The Arabic names for Jerusalem are very interesting. Um, for those of you who know a little bit of Hebrew in this room, uh, one of the names for Jerusalem is Beit al-Maqdis. What does that sound like? Beit HaMikdash. Beit HaMikdash is the way to say the temple in Jerusalem. And in Arabic, Beit al-Maqdis, it means the same thing, the holy house. Or it's sometimes called simply in, in modern Palestinian Arabic, Al-Quds, which is a short form of Al-Qudus. So what does that sound like? Al-Kadosh. It's the holy city. Islam achieved religious and political control over Jerusalem and Palestine from very early in its history. It, it's connected, and its connection to that place has become concrete, not just abstract, like in Christianity. And in, unlike with the Jews, 
the Muslims didn't have to be satisfied with only a spiritual connection to a land controlled politically by foreign rulers. In fact, Palestine has been situated in the heartland of the Muslim world for more than 1,400 years. So the Islamic connection with these areas is not only spiritual, it's also very political. Along with the extraordinary successes of the conquests came a sense, certainly logical, that God was behind the great triumph of Islam. There were even Jews and Christians who saw the speed and the success of the conquest, and they wrote at that time about what seemed to have been its divine destiny. The extraordinary success of Islam created a sense among many Muslims that its success is its destiny and is the will of God. It was natural. I should mention that this perspective is not unique to Muslims. It was and, and is similar among many Christians. When in a single generation, now we're backing up a little bit historically, in a single generation, the pagan Roman Empire not only stopped throwing Christians to the lions, but suddenly turned entirely around and adopted Christianity as its official religion in the fourth century, Christians had that same feeling. Success was considered a divinely wrought sight, sign of Christianity's right and responsibility to be in control and even to convert all non-believers to the truth of their religion. It was God's will that brought the pagan Roman Empire to Christ. But this triumphalism was overturned a few centuries later by Muslim warriors. It was that sudden defeat of the Christian Byzantine Empire many years ago that fostered much of the hatred and the fear of Islam that is so deeply embedded in Western culture to this day. Because of Islam's long history of political and military success, Muslims tend to consider Muslim political control of the Holy Land to be a divine right. Losing control of these sites to Christians in the Crusades was a huge existential blow. But they eventually wrested back control of the Holy City. The Arab world lost Jerusalem to Israel in 1967. Many Muslims expect that they will again take back control. But it's not only a military or political affinity that Muslims have with Jerusalem. There's also a very deep spiritual affinity as well. Al-Quds is the city of prophets and kings. It's where David and Solomon, both prophets in Islam, lived and reigned. In Islam, as well as Judaism and Christianity, Jerusalem is the gateway to heaven. According to Islamic tradition, in the end of days, Mecca will come to Jerusalem and they will meet. And on those days, Muslims will be judged in Jerusalem. Have you seen the Dome of the Rock? There is one of the uh, iconic entrances to the, to the top area, to the, to the top platform. There is this uh, uh, structure that is like uh, five or six pillars with these beautiful um, arches in between them. Have you, I don't know if you, any of you recognize this. It, those are called al-mizan. Mizan in Arabic is the same as the Hebrew word moznaim. Those mean, that means um, scales. And those are the scales upon which everybody's deeds will be judged at the end of days, according to the tradition. And then from Jerusalem, Asira, this is this uh, bridge, will appear that will go from Jerusalem up to heaven, because Jerusalem, remember in the Midrash, is Sha'ar HaShamayim, is the gateway to heaven. And all Muslims, sinners and righteous, will walk on this bridge to heaven. But the bridge is the width of a hair. 
So only the righteous will be able to navigate and the wicked will fall off into Jahannam. What's Jahannam? Gehinom, the Hinom Valley, which is the hell of the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible text. Fascinating cosmology and end of days uh, imagery. So um, Jerusalem was known in ancient Arabia, even before Islam, as a city of prophets, long before Muhammad's birth. Jews and Christians had been living in Arabia for centuries, and they shared their religious traditions and ideas with the local Arabs before Islam came. There seemed to be a deep sense among the early Muslim believers that their prophet, like Jesus, and the biblical prophets and, and kings should be associated with Jerusalem. But where did Muhammad live? In Arabia, far away from Jerusalem, farther away than the Galilee. And uh, he died in Arabia. And there's no evidence that would satisfy historians that he ever journeyed to, to Jerusalem except for one interesting verse in the Quran, fascinating verse. According to Islamic interpretation, it refers to Muhammad's night journey to Jerusalem, where Prophet Muhammad served as the imam or prayer leader to lead all the spirits of the biblical prophets in prayer, including Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, Jesus. They were all led by Muhammad in prayer. And on that journey, Muhammad stepped off the foundation stone we know from the Mishnah, and ascended to heaven where he met God face to face and received divine guidance. So how did he get there? Well, here's the Quranic evidence. I'm going to read you from the Quran. Actually, I'm going to read it to you in Arabic because there are a few words that you might be able to pick up that are similar to Hebrew or a key word. Let's see. <clears throat> this is from uh, uh, chapter 17 of the Quran. The first verse. Subhan, are you listening carefully? Subhan aladhi asra bi abdihi laylan min al masjid al haram ila al masjid al aqsa aladhi barakna hawlahu minurihu min ayatina inahuhu as sami al basir. You got that right? Anyone want to translate that for me, please? Layla. Subhan aladhi asra bi abdihi laylan. It was a night journey. Abd. What's an abd? Ebed. His servant, right? Like a slave, a servant, Evid. And uh, did you get the uh, Al-Aqsa? You got that Al-Aqsa? That's the, it's called the distant mosque. So Al-Aqsa means the faraway mosque. And uh, that's a reference that's understood by Muslim tradition to refer to Jerusalem. So um, what's the importance there? The Quran doesn't include all of the laws and traditions of Islam. Just like the Bible doesn't include all the laws and traditions of Judaism. The Bible was supplemented, if you will, with a tradition that we call basically the Talmud or rabbinic literature. So for example, how do we know that we pray three times a day in the traditional Jewish practice? Because in the Talmud it explains why and the authority for the, for the prayer. So too in the Quran, it doesn't say that you're supposed to pray five times a day. It just says you're supposed to pray. And it, 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 there's a verse that suggests that there's an odd number of prayers. It could be three, could be, could be five, could be seven. So where does, where does the information come from that authenticates and authorizes five prayers? It comes from that night journey. That night journey, Muhammad journeyed from Mecca on a, on a um, 
supernatural force named Barak, means something like lightning, and uh, came to Jerusalem, and Barak was tied up uh, on an iron ring that was stuck in a stone wall, and to this day, uh, Palestinians refer to the Western Wall as Al-Burak, the Burak Wall. And then Muhammad went up after leading all of the prophets in prayer, went up and stepped off the foundation stone, went through the various heavens. And there are layers, right? Seven layers of heaven and seven layers of hell. This comes, you know, Dante's Inferno comes out of the Islamic tradition, actually, where this notion of the various layers comes from. And in each of the various, you know, you take the elevator and you go through the various layers, there are different prophets. And the greatest prophet was in the highest layer who was closest to God. So who was there? Who did he meet there at the highest layer, according to Islamic tradition? Who would you guess it might be? Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. So he meets Moses, and every time they meet, he meets a prophet, he gives greetings, and the prophet greets the prophet of Islam as well, and greets him as a prophet. And then Muhammad goes to the, uh, to the highest level, beyond the highest level, where he meets God face to face. Who do we know met God face to face? Moses. And what happened when he met God face to face? He saw the back, right? He didn't see him face to face, really. But he received the tradition, right? He, what was, Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, right? What was he doing? He was not playing shesh fish. He was learning with God. So also, when Muhammad stepped off into heaven in the night journey, he was learning from God. So according to the tradition, and this is in the, in the highest authority of tradition, when Muhammad came back down after receiving the oral law in Islam, which now is called the Hadith, he met, the first person he saw was Moses. And he said to him, this is in your handout, but I'm going to tell it to you in a kind of a Jewish way. He said to him, Moshe, I had the most amazing experience. And Moses said, and he was the only one who could relate to it, because he was the only one that had an amazing experience too. It was a kind of meshing of, of tradition. And Moses says, it was absolutely amazing, wasn't it? He says, yes, yes. And he said, Muhammad said, and I promised God, I was so moved that I and my people would pray to him 50 times a day. And Moses said, Oizei, <laughs> you promised to pray 50 times a day? My people saw the parting of the Red Sea and the miracles of God, and I still can't get them to pray three times a day. So you better go back and renegotiate. So Muhammad goes back again, and then he goes down to 40, 35, something like that. Then he comes back down, and Moses says, no, no, that's not enough. Goes back up again, and then he says, five, 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 that was it. I'm not going to go any more than that. No further down. And so that's why there are five prayers in Islam to this day. That's, you'll see it in, the, in that uh, text. Not told exactly that way, but similar. <laughs> So my point is that in Islam there is a physical and a political connection with Jerusalem <coughs> through the reigns of power, and there really is a deep spiritual connection uh, through the world's greatest prophet, Muhammad, according to Islam. It's through Jerusalem, the gateway to heaven, that he received direct guidance for proper living and righteous behavior. The night journey has become a supreme event in the sacred history of Islam. This great spiritual occasion also has political implications. For like most modern Jews, 
most modern Muslims believe that they have the right to control their holy place. So here you have it. Jerusalem is sacred to three great monotheistic communities. Jews and Christians and Muslims can argue over the sanctity of Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah. To whom is Jerusalem more holy? Whose religious association takes precedence over the other? Which community has more right to be in political or administrative control over the holy city? The issues of sanctity have degenerated into violence and war, and each position can be supported by citing scriptural texts and referring to powerful symbols and tradition and history. What is needed today, and what is unfortunately sorely lacking, is moral responsibility in politics. Responsibility that's willing to respect and honor the fears and the sacred symbols of one's negotiating partner. And although religion is often cited as speaking in absolutes, what is especially needed right now is willingness to compromise. That's something that's very rare in politics today, in secular politics as well. And that seems to come from a profound lack of trust. So respect and compromise and trust, these are the keys to successful resolution of conflict. All of us need to work in our communities, and I don't speak only in Jewish communities. Thank goodness I'm also invited to speak to Muslim communities as well. We need to work in all of our communities to promote these values. We need to be, to quote Rabbi Hillel's phrase in Pirkei Avot, Rodfei Shalom, pursuers of peace. The Vilna Gaon cites a commentary on Pirkei Avot in which he says, how can one be a Rodef Shalom, a pursuer of peace? A person should be a pursuer of peace among people, between each and every one. If a person sits in his place in the silent, how can he pursue peace? Rather, one should go out from one's own place. You have to leave your place and go searching in the world and pursue peace among people. I hope that that should only happen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so we have, we have about a half hour, and uh, I want to open up the floor for questions. And um, I encourage you beyond the topic of, of Jerusalem, of Jerusalem, to take advantage of the opportunity that we have a wonderful scholar of Judaism and Islam to ask other things on your mind. No stupid question. I want to remind everyone that uh, no one, you know, it's very rare you have a scholar of both. The, se the second thing I want to ask, uh, share before we take questions um, is that because of the complexity of this issue and of the sources before you, uh, uh, in your packet, Rabbi Schneider and I have decided that next Wednesday, a week from this Wednesday, we're going to have back in this room a follow-up conversation, a discussion about this topic and about these sources. So if you didn't get the chance to go through all the sources or you're left with big questions tonight, come join us again a week from Wednesday to look more deeply at the sources, to talk more deeply about some of this, uh, some of this complicated material. With that, I'm going to walk around with the mic. So um, the Ninth Journey is uh, the earliest uh, uh, rendering of that. It, it occurs a lot in the tradition, right? It's repeated in a lot of traditions. The earliest rendering is in one of the earliest um, 
pieces of literature that comes out of Islam. It's actually quite early. It's in the uh, a, it's in a collection of hadith that is collected by a guy named Al Bukhari, and uh, it's a tradition. It's a from a from a scholarly perspective. From a scholarly perspective, it looks like it's an old tradition, but there's no certainty that it ever happened or didn't happen, right? I mean, these these are this is a religious tradition, and it's um. In that tradition, the angels, Gabriel and Michael, come to visit Muhammad one night while he's living in Mecca still. And they, uh, they, because he is a prophet, a new prophet of God, and he needs to be in a state of ritual purity, they, before he even goes to Jerusalem, they bring him to the sacred well in Mecca, which is called the Zamzam. And they slit open his, his uh, belly from his chin to his navel. They remove all of his guts. They wash it in the sacred spring. They put them all back. Angels can do those things. And then he, they sew him up. I probably don't sew him up. They zip him up. And then he rides on this horse. Uh, horse, a pegasus with wings. And he's brought to Jerusalem. And on, his, on the way, he also meets, he learns all kinds of moral ethical lessons about justice and righteousness. And he goes to Jerusalem. And he's now in a position kind of a state of purity to actually meet God, and that's when he shows up. It's, a, it's an early tale. Anybody else on this round? One, two. Remember your number. Yes. Thank you. 
Um, that's a good question. Did you all hear the question? Okay, could you repeat it and turn, also sure. stand up and turn around? No yeah. problem. Sometimes the consequences of, of a position can cloud our judgment of whether a position is right or wrong. So just in the free thinking, good faith nature of tonight's forum, let's put aside the consequences of the truth of the matter and just talk about on the merits whether the following is correct or not. Most violent terrorism is committed by Muslims. So I'd like Rabbi Dr. Firestone to tell us, based on all of his studies, is it fair and reasonable to, uh, to say that Islam promotes terrorism? So um, that's an interesting uh, topic. It's a topic of great interest of mine. In fact, I wrote a book about jihad in Islam that, uh, that came out before 9-11. It was before it became a politicized issue. and. Um, and I just wrote a, uh, finished a book on holy war Judaism and the revival of holy war ideas in, in Judaism. <coughs> and I am now working on the culminative, what is that, what's the word? Uh, uh, work, I hope, that will give a kind of a general theory on holy war and religion. So I would, first of all, I have to question the premise, the first premise, that most terror is conducted by, by Muslims. It depends on how you look at the topic. In fact, uh, and I can't, I don't have the statistics with me, but in 2013, I believe, the United Nations that does examination of acts of terror, or, or the European Union, determined that about somewhere between 15 and 20% of the acts of terror that were conducted in Europe in the 10 years prior were conducted by Muslims. That's a very low rate based on our assumption that most terror is conducted by Muslims. So at least in the, in the European theater, it certainly is not the case. At least that's according to the EU statistics. So um, we, we have, th this now we get into a very tough and difficult topic, which is perception and reality and narrative. What is a narrative? I'm gonna take a few minutes to respond to this question because it's a really important question. What is a narrative? What we call sometimes a meta-narrative. How do we look at the world? How do we view the world? The world is too complicated for us to understand it in all of its complexity. No human being can understand what's going on in the world in all its complexity. So we, we filter what, everything that happens in the world through a kind of set of lenses that we create for ourselves or that have been created for us. And those lenses, those lenses through which we observe the world are determined by our age, our gender, our religious tradition, our education, all kinds of things. And as Jews, we have a particular agreement in general terms about a kind of a Jewish narrative. There are a lot of variations on the theme, but in general, we do have that view. And one of those narratives that is very much a part of Western, the Western world in general is that Islam is fearful, is, fear, is fearsome, should be feared, and is violent, and is a seriously problematic religion. Now, that wasn't always the Jewish position on this. I, I'm a medievalist, and I deal mostly with medieval material. But if you were to look at medieval writings about, from Jews about Christianity and Islam, you would find almost the exact opposite perspective of what we have today. They would say, and I've read this stuff, uh, Christianity is 
an evil religion. It's hateful, violent, nasty, and wants to kill people who don't agree with it, and they don't understand the truth of God. Right. The Jewish writings about Islam from the same period, 12th century, 13th century, would be something like this. Islam doesn't understand the truth of God. And that's the end of it. They didn't, they didn't see it as a hateful, violent religion. Now, if you look at Jewish writings on the blogosphere today, you probably would find the opposite, right? Islam is a hateful, angry religion. Christianity, maybe they don't understand the Trinity, they don't understand you know, real monotheism, but that's about as far as it goes. So, so here's my, my take on this. The, and this I've studied, my, my area is the monotheistic traditions. I can't speak about Buddhism and about Hindu traditions. But in the scriptural monotheisms, you may not like hearing this, but I am deeply convinced that no religion is inherently more or less violent than the other. There are trajectories of violent thought in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and trajectories of nonviolent thought. I'm gonna, let me give you a little evidence for this. Before the Bar Kokhba rebellion, Judaism was a very militant tradition. Just look at the Bible. First case of, of recorded genocide. Or, or commitments or commandments for genocide is found in the book of Deuteronomy. It's there, and in, the, in, the, and, and in Joshua. The Jews were very prized mercenaries, and they were picked up by various uh, armies because they were known as being valiant warriors. We celebrate a holy war victory every year. What do we call it? Hanukkah. But the rabbis retooled Judaism because violence didn't work anymore. We lost too many big wars with the Roman Empire, and Judaism essentially retooled to become a quietist tradition. Not, not non-violent, not pacifist, but essentially non-violent. And that's only because it didn't work. So the bottom line in religion, religious as a community, is that religion does what it can to support its community of believers. And if, it, if it's best for the community of believers to be violent, it will be. And if it's best for the community of believers for it not to be violent, it won't be. Here's, here's Exhibit B. Well, let me go back to Exhibit A again. Judaism. Biblical Judaism, there's a lot of violence. Quranic Islam, there's a lot of violence. Because biblical religion emerged in a world in which if you weren't tough, you would be destroyed. There, was no, there were no police... There was no national army. There was no way to enforce law universally. There was no, no United Nations. <coughs> so if you didn't protect yourself and engage in preemptive fighting, you wouldn't exist. That was the same type of environment in which Islam emerged. And you see the same level of violence within scripture. Christianity is different. Christianity emerged in a world in which the Roman Empire had a monopoly on violence. Anybody who was violent in the Roman Empire, any community would be destroyed or would be severely punished by the Roman Empire. So the New Testament, that is the, the scripture that emerged out of that environment, does not advocate violence because it would have been self-destructive to the community. Josephus, the great Jewish Roman historian, wrote about other messianic figures who were violent messianists who existed in the same generation as Jesus, and they were wiped out by the Romans very quickly. 
So, so Christianity, you can argue, is a nonviolent tradition. But what happened when the Roman Empire became Christianized? And suddenly Christianity inherited the legions of Rome. It became a very violent tradition. So here we have a retooling from a nonviolent tradition to a very militant tradition. In Judaism, you see a retooling from a militant tradition to a non-militant tradition. Christianity then retooled a second time because it imploded in the Middle Ages when, with the Protestant Reformation and the wars between the Protestants and the Catholics that killed so many millions of people, destroyed tens of thousands of towns and villages, and then the Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, was a time, it was a, basically a symbolic statement that Christianity was removing itself from that world of politics. And so it retooled again. So religion is not inherently more or less violent. And at this moment, um, Muslims are, are indeed engaged in a lot of violence. No question about it. And some people are suggesting that that the, what's going on in the Muslim world today is something, a kind of catastrophe that both we Jews experienced, for example, against the Roman Empire that we almost destroyed ourselves, and Christians experienced in the Middle Ages where they almost destroyed themselves and retooled their ideology. Some became extremely militant, and then, but the whole, the whole shebang moved to a kind of non-militant position that this is the catastrophe that is affecting the Muslim world that is inviting a lot of change. There are a lot of voices in the Muslim world today that you may not know of because you're not reading in Arabic and Persian and all the other you know, languages. But there are lots of voices, not just the radical ISIS types, but lots of other voices as well. And we'll see what happens. I, I, mean, I think it's, they're going to have to retool. But, um, so so I'm, I, not all violence is, is Islamic violence, but they are certainly engaged in a lot of trouble right now. They're really in trouble. And, and I, they are Muslims who are engaged in this. But it's not necessarily Islam that is the precipitating factor. There are economic issues, there are political issues, there are problems of support with um, American and Western governments supporting dictatorships. There's a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, and a lot of fury in the Muslim world today. So it, as usual, these things are very complicated. Number two. I think so. I think that's, that's accurate. Yeah, because it, it, it legitimizes his prophethood. It, the prophets were in Jerusalem, similar to what I, I tried to argue the same idea was associated with Jesus. Jesus needed to be in Jerusalem to show the authenticity of his leadership, his religious leadership. So too, Muhammad's uh, leadership was authenticated by his night journey to Jerusalem. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that Jerusalem became such a sacred city where we don't know what really caused the sanctity in the first place. Aside from the fact that it was the political capital of the Jewish people, 
at that period of time, and they were monotheists. So, yes? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, also, for the record, let me note that the Quran, uh, and, and I can support this, the Quran does not call for conquest. There's no, no rules for conquest in the Quran, no calls for conquest in the Quran. There are calls to fight. It's usually in defensive. Like, there's some uh, verses that can be seen as being defensive or, or offensive, depending on how you look at it. No, no more offensive or initiative than in the Hebrew Bible. There's, there's no geographic limitation, though, to, to the community. It doesn't say the land of Islam, whereas we say the land of Israel, right? And there are borders that are given in the Torah. So, so that can be understood, maybe, by interpreters as going beyond it. But when Islam became a, an empire, um, uh, interpreters of the Islam, of Islam, let me put this, when Islam became an empire, interpreters of the Quran looked to the Quran and suddenly discovered that, uh, that the Quran justifies empire, right? So that, that's the way humans work. This is not an Islamic problem. This is a human problem. This is a, a human issue. And, and so there is a kind of imperialist interpretation that's put on the Quran. Now, Islam really did uh, treat Jews better than Christians. That is, Islam as a religious tradition gives citizenship to Jews and, and, and Christians and demands that they have uh, representation. They can sue Muslims in courts of law, in Islamic courts of law, they can sue. They don't have the same privileges that, that Muslims have. They are at a reduced level of, of citizenship, but they have citizenship. In the Christian world, Jews lost their citizenship entirely, and they had no right, uh, legal right, to be in the Christian world, um, certainly by the high Middle Ages in, uh, in the Christian world. So, so Islam in general has been better. There's a, a, a big debate about this so-called golden age in the Muslim world, and the truth of the matter is it was the best thing available for Jews. It's not something that we should aspire to today, but it was certainly better than anything else that was offered in the pre-modern period. And it was better than a lot of modern situations as well. Because the worst of the Muslim world was never near what, is the, the, what we faced in Nazi Germany or in Stalinist Russia, right? So you know, all of these, so, so if, you, if you're concerned about religion and you, you think religion is the cause of all evil, uh, just think about this great secular governments of Germany in the middle 20th century and Soviet Union in the middle 20th century. But, but what really precipitated the radicalization of Islam uh, against the West was a colonialism. The fact that the entire Muslim world, with the exception of Turkey, came under the imperialist colonial rule of Western powers. And when you are in control of another country, it was, you didn't even, in those days, you didn't even pretend you were doing it for the good of the local people. You, were, you controlled other people, you exploited their resources, you exploited their labor, 
you, uh, you exploited their uh, uh, political uh, positions and access to uh, markets. And that was just what you did. And so anybody who was under control of another country was itching to get out and was angry about it. So in addition to colonialism, when the colonial powers came into these parts of the world, also many, many missionaries came and they tried to convert the Muslims to the true religion, which was Christianity, right? And so there was a denigration of Islam that was really resented by the local people. There wasn't much they could do about it. So there, there's a lot, a lot of complexity in, in all of this. And you can imagine being in a position, um, if you were on the receiving end of things, that you would radicalize as well. So it's not an issue of Islam per se. It's within an Islamic context, it's a kind of human response to what is perceived of as aggression. Yes. Question, comment. I'm glad you said, you used those two terms, suicide bombers and martyrs. And in, there is no suicide bombing in Islamic tradition. It doesn't exist. Because suicide is forbidden in Islam. And that's uh, very clear in the tradition. That it's forbidden. And the punishment for suicide is a divine punishment. So if you, if you commit suicide, let's say you jump off of a building, your eternal punishment for that act is that second of pain that you felt before you blacked out and you died for eternity. If you poisoned yourself, you stabbed yourself, whatever it is, that's your eternal punishment. Suicide is really forbidden in Islam. So, so the, the finesse that's done there is this is not an act of suicide, this is an act of martyrdom. And martyrdom is, is well respected in Islam, as it is in Christianity and as it is in Judaism. So the question is, how do you define a martyr? And um, up until the mm, third quarter of the 20th century, uh, the definition of, uh, of, of martyrdom sort of went through a change in some Muslim uh, poski. What, what's a poski in Islam? Uh, a mufti or somebody who gives a religious ruling in Islam. And some of them, not all of them, not even most of them, some of them began to valorize what we would call suicide bombing. And they, they said, they, so one of the excuses that are made is that you, you're not, you're, you are taking the, the very, very strong risk of dying in this act, but you are engaging in a kind of um, uh, defense of the community. Now, you have to understand, suicide bombing was invented, not by Muslims, by the way, it was invented by uh, Sri Lankans. Buddhists, and uh, and it became was it was the uh, became a de rigueur, if you will, in the Sri Lankan conflict between the the Tamils and the mm, the majority population of Sri Lanka. Then it got picked up really with uh, in the Lebanon war, uh, and there were Shiites that were first involved, and then then people thought, well, this is a Shiite aberration, but it's not a Shiite aberration. It came into Sunni Islam as well. And, um, but you only find, you only find suicide bombing uh, and suicide acts among uh, uh, communities that are extremely overwhelmed by 
the military power of an enemy that is seen as being extremely oppressive. It's only in those conditions that you see it happen. You don't see Americans uh, involved in mass suicide bombings or anything like that. You see you know, people once in a while who are crazy doing this kind of stuff. But you don't find this kind of, you know, as a, as a phenomenology. And, and that is justified, I'm not trying to justify it myself, okay? but it is sometimes justified by saying, look, we don't have weapons. And they have, they're destroying our communities and our people and they have drones and they have uh, airplanes and they have howitzers and, and we don't have these kinds of weapons and we need to try to defend ourselves. So the only way that we can give, make them feel pain is to do things like this and that will show them that they can't get away freely with this sort of act. So, yeah. So officially it's not condoned. Um, in reality, some Muslim religious leaders have said it's okay, but the, all of the majority of people say it's not okay. It's not impossible to transcend. There are ways that communities can transcend 
um, their own trauma. And there are people who are working on that, who work on uh, community trauma, because we're, tra we're traumatized. Jews are traumatized as a community. We're traumatized from our experience in Europe. We're traumatized from our experience in Israel. But we also, um, the people with who, that we tend to blanketly blame, and I'm not saying there's not blame to go around, are also feeling traumatized. So, so when you're in a situation like that, it's very difficult to overcome. And um, I don't have an answer for it. Like, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. But I, I think one thing that we can do, and, is, and one thing that I encourage you to do, is to, is to reach out to um, Muslim neighbors that you know, or, or clients you have, or vendors that are in your community, and establish a relationship. Because when you have a human relationship with another human being, it's very difficult to put them in a category. We tend to see them as, as human beings, and therefore as, as, you know, uh, as, as potential friends, and it's harder to demonize the human being. And the more that we can be engaged, I mean, this is a grassroots suggestion. This is not going to solve the problems in the Middle East. But it does have a, it does have a ripple effect, and it's an, something that you actually can do. Uh, it means having patience, too. So with that, thank you. Thank you, Professor Firestone. I know you've really challenged us to see a much deeper, more complex picture. Um, and one of the ways I feel challenged is that I feel that um, we can't just live in a world that we wish it to be a certain way. Right? At the end of the day, there are completing, competing interests and narratives and factions. And at the least, we have to understand those. We have to understand those, those dynamics and not really dismiss as if we wish they were not there. Um, and so I thank you for, for challenging us and opening up our minds. Again, next Wednesday night, we're gonna, we're gonna unpack this on, a, on the next level together. I also wanna welcome you two weeks from tonight, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Hartman from the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem is going to be speaking with us at Temple Heights. Thank you, Colomie, thank you, Rabbi Schneider, thank you, Professor Firestone, thank you all for joining us.